Our Father, we're thankful that You have provided for every need. We thank You that we can come to worship You as the only God, the Creator God, the Creator of the universe. And we can come to know You as our Savior through the grace shown to, to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask now that You'd illuminate our hearts to what You have in Your law that You spent so many centuries inculcating in the nation Israel. And so therefore, tonight we look in anticipation at Your words to apply them to our lives at this moment in history. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, just to kind of get a review and get things, uh, get the circulation between the ears going here a little bit. Um, if you were dealing with a problem of suffering, what historical event would you visualize of the ones that we've done so far? What would be the one that you'd say, okay, there's my anchor event. Now I'm going to start thinking about the text and the narratives and the issues with that great act of revelation. So going back to last year, all the way back, which would be the event that you'd gravitate to? Any, any category of suffering, whether it's... Uh, a disciplinary uh, issue with a believer, whether it's uh, the problem of death, whether it's cancer, whether it's some difficulty, where would you move to? Fall. Okay, if somebody said to you that they were working in a, in a laboratory and it's been shown that um, all of our emotions, all of our consciousness and everything else is just growing out of the biochemistry of the human brain. And therefore, since we believe that uh, man is a machine because this is how he evolved along with all the other natural machines in the universe and so on, what alarm bells would go off in your head that tells you that's in conflict with something? What event, what cluster of scripture would you go to? Or should you? creation. Good. Um, if someone were to tell you that um, salvation is purely, uh, the whole act of salvation is purely a spiritual thing um, that we, when we die, we go to heaven and that's it. Um, we go, so to speak, out of physical history into a sort of a heavenly place and um, that's the end of our interaction with the physical universe. Salvation, in other words, is an escape from the material into the, quote, spiritual realm, new age stuff, you know, that kind of thing. When the word salvation and deliverance is mentioned, what thought, what thought pattern to get back into the Bible should you begin to think about? In other words, what are our two images that we've studied so far? What two great historical events are depictions of what salvation, what that noun means, what salvation means that shows you that it's not just spiritual? We've studied, yeah, okay, the flood and the exodus. In both cases, there are, there are revelation of what the word salvation means. And God is not content at merely 
the spiritual realm. He's also the physical realm. It's as much physical as it is spiritual. Why is that? Because when man fell, was it just spiritual? Or was the act of falling and disobeying God, did that have physical repercussions? That it did, didn't it, in the fall? Ground was cursed. Man began to die. There was an interruption in the physical, chemical processes of all. So, today, if, for example, somebody says to you that the norm of our society can be discovered the proper norm, can be discovered by simply interviewing a thousand people's behavior and plotting it on a graph paper, and you get the bell-shaped curve. And obviously the mean is the normal, so we define that to be normal. What totally incorrect premise underlies that whole idea of a statistical investigation to discover norms and standards? What is true of present history? if we are to believe scripturally. It goes back to the, what we said with the origination of, of the sin and suffering and so forth. What does that make the present universe to be? Normal or abnormal? We live in an abnormal universe compared to the way God had it when he originally created. So how then, by taking a statistic of, an, of a performing abnormal creation, do you get a norm? You see? Now these are the ways you want to start thinking to bring your faith into contact with the culture around you. And we need to do that. We need to be able to say that because I'm a Christian, I view things this way. And, we, and more important than even that is to recognize that because the culture is non-Christian, it's screwed up. That very, in a very, very basic way, the culture around us is seriously perverted. And I don't mean, people always think of perversion as some sort of moral perversion. We're not talking here, necessarily, about a moral perversion. We're talking about a total screw-up in the way reality is viewed. Reality is being viewed in a very skewed way. Um, we studied um, an event that taught us something about... Um, how God, what God has to do in order to save us. In other words, one of those events was the premier introduction, so to speak, of the gospel in the sense that it pointed or revealed um, God's game plan once post-flood society began to paganize through the Tower of Babel and so forth. And then we have the origination of a subset of the human race and really the origin of missions. And what event is that? Call of Abraham. So, these are the ways to think through these things. Now, thinking that way, we just come through the Exodus here and we said that the Exodus is like the flood. Both of those are judgment salvation events. And both of those have the same five characteristics. You see it again and again and again. The Bible is very consistent this way. Every time there's salvation, there's one and only one way to be saved. There's only one ark. There's only one way to be saved from the angel of death. It's by blood on the door. Same Hebrew word, by the way. Atonement for the covering of the ark. So there's always one way. There's always a spiritual and a physical aspect to salvation. 
God is always gracious before he saves. He waits and he waits and he waits and he waits. Grace before judgment. And the method of, of appropriating that salvation is always by faith. And it's always by faith because we can't do anything. We're disqualified from the get-go because we, we are part of the fall. We are the problem. So we can't contribute anything of our shining examples to this gospel package. If we did, we'd pollute it. So that's why salvation is always by faith. It has to be by faith. We have to do the receiving. God has to do the giving. And the reason is because it must be done God's way because we are all fallen beings. We're all contaminated. We're all sinners. And therefore, we don't have any assets. It goes back to the arithmetic of accounting. We're all in the debit column here. There's no credits. And so, in order to be saved, and remember we learned about that in justification, salvation is not just going from a debit to zero. It's going from a debit to a positive credit. And that's because Originally, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were at zero. And they theoretically, if they hadn't fallen, would have gained credit by their obedience. So the pathway, which was originally from zero to plus one, has now gone from zero to minus one back up to plus one. So you've got to get back to plus one to be acceptable with God because now there isn't any intermediate zero. There's only two positions available now since the fall has happened and you can't come back to zero. If we could come back to zero, i.e. all our sins are forgiven but we don't have any positive righteousness, we would try to recapitulate Adam and Eve's state in the garden but that state's gone. So that's not available as an option. The zero position isn't available. So there's only a minus one and a plus one. So we have to go from minus one to plus one. The only way we can do that is both be forgiven of our sins and to acquire a righteousness that we don't have. And that's the gift of salvation. And the righteousness that we acquire is a righteousness that God doesn't decree from heaven, but it's a righteousness that actually was generated inside history by a member of the human race and the son of Adam. The righteousness Jesus Christ generated by his holy life and righteousness and obedience. That's the righteousness that is credited to us. Had Jesus failed in that mission, then all the people who were saved in the Old Testament, it was, it was contingent. It was contingent upon Jesus doing it. And if he didn't do it, then their salvation would fall. So, Jesus' life, the four Gospels, a very important part, that's when this righteousness was generated. Okay, let's come now to the events. Uh, we're going to try to do these reviews uh, each week and, and maybe do a, some doctrines one week or the events another week or sections of the scriptures just to kind of review and solidify some of this now because we've got enough, enough content here that it can last you for years going through this and I just want you to realize that this is it's not just a few topics we've covered. Um, we've looked at the Exodus. Now, the Exodus is a counterpart to a human worldly idea. What worldly, paganized idea is a faint substitute for the Exodus? What is it that men down through history have craved and in our own last 300 years of Western history have been seriously embarked upon programs 
to produce artificially by human works what the Exodus accomplished. And that pagan, those pagan programs we call revolutions. The idea that human society can get rid of evil and can get corrected, can get fixed. And it is by some cataclysmic event, Karl Marx, the Russian Revolution, the French, the French Revolution, wouldn't classify necessarily the United States uh, American Revolution as a real revolution. It was more of an upheaval inside the English legal tradition. Um, we really can't be compared in one, many ways. And this is why third world countries that always try to, quote, have their revolution mimicking ours don't have the basis for it. We had a basis for it in English, English tradition, English law, and so forth, and it was, which was largely biblically derived. And it was a contest from components inside that tradition. But when you get to the Russian Revolution, you get to the French Revolution, there you had a titanic shift, throwing out the king, completely replacing him with something else. I mean, it was just a massive break of human institutions, bloodbaths. And the Exodus was a bloodbath. But the blood wasn't shed over men fighting men. The blood was shed to solve a basic problem that the other revolutions don't solve. Marx didn't solve the problem because all communism does, and Marxism ever did, was to replace one flesh with the other flesh. So you go in with one form of government, you come out with another, but the sin is over here and sin is over here. So how have you gotten rid of evil in society? You haven't. So the Exodus now is a model revolution. This is what a revolution looks like from God's point of view. It's his personally executed revolution. So keep the Exodus model in mind. Next time you read about a revolution or the Shining Path guerrillas in Peru want to create hostages and take the country apart and all the rest of it and this and that, when you, when you see these, then, and a lot of these people are very sincere. I mean, they're very dedicated. Communists are very, very dedicated people because they really genuinely thought that they could change and get rid of evil in human society by their program. And that's why they were willing to kill people to get there. The end justified the means. So, we come to that. Now, we come on page 64 of the notes today to the issue of the law. And we want to turn in our Bibles, once again, to Exodus 19. Last week, we showed you pictures of Mount Sinai. And I think you got enough from those pictures to catch the imagery of what's happening and uh, what, a, what a place God put his people in, uh, an amphitheater of sand and rock. And he had a perfect PA system, his own voice, with the reverberation off those cliffs on both sides of that big valley where all the people gathered together so they could hear. Now, the address of God from Mount Sinai um, was pretty, uh, you heard about the expression about putting the fear of God in people. Um, verse 9 of Exodus 19. Once again, just to look at some characteristics of what happened on that day, on that mountain, in that Sinai Peninsula. Behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud, in order that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. Now, the believe in you, meaning believe the word of God that was sent. 
Notice in here, in verse 9, the, the purpose clause. You see there's a purpose clause? I come with you. There's the indicative verb. There's this main, main clause. And then you come to this purpose clause. In order that the people may hear when I speak with you. In other words, God deliberately wanted people to overhear the conversation. We said last time it's a very, very important aspect of revelation. This is a public revelation. Now let me tell you right now, because we're going to get into this next week and the notes that are handed out. Right here, this is as radical a statement as anything you saw in Genesis 1. Now, what you saw in Genesis 1 was radical from the physics point of view, the geology point of view, and the biology point of view, okay? This verse, verse 9, and all the verses like it in chapter 19, chapter 20, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 5, this whole packet of Scripture is as offensive to modern thought as anything in Genesis. Now, let me tell you the point of offense. Let me try to show you just razor sharp why paganism rebels profoundly against this kind of thing. In verse 9, it says God is going to speak. It doesn't say Moses went up to Mount Sinai and dreamed a dream. Now, that's the interpretation that the modern theologian has to have. He can't accept a public revelation of a speaking God. That is absolutely out of it. Why is that? Think back a moment. When we went back to creation, you remember I started the course off a year ago and I made a big point over and over again until I'm, I'm sure some of you thought, what is he doing with all this? Remember I kept saying about language? And I said that there's limitations to human language. And I, I said that again and again and again. Limitations to human language. Limitations to human language. What do we mean by limitations to human language? You have the language, it, our human language has certain limitations in it. Um, the, uh, I gave you a, a semantic paradox. The famous Greek paradox that says, all Cretans are liars, said the Cretan poet. Now, how do you analyze that? If all Cretans are liars, and the poet who said all Cretan liars is a liar. In which case, what he said is true, and if what he said is true, then all Cretans can't be liars because he's a Cretan. So you can set up these paradoxes. People kind of get amused at them. But in a more serious note, there's a problem in human language. We have inherent paradoxical things that happen in the language. A language is incapable of certain things. This is why uh, people in the literary world will often use poetry instead of prose. What's the difference between prose and poetry? Poetry has an emotional element to it that it, prose doesn't. It has a, has a whack to it that, that just prose can't carry. So there's something else there than just the verbal. Now, what the modern theologian has done, and it to has totally destroyed Bible teaching. This is why your first liberal church doesn't teach the Bible anymore. This is why modern theology cannot accept fundamentalist faith anymore. Because they started with a philosophy of human language that says it's limited, therefore they conclude, God can, there's no communication between God's mind and my mind. Because if it has to come through the conduit of human language, it gets truck, it's like a uh, stuck pipe. 
the, the pipe in your plumbing isn't big enough to carry the load. And so therefore they give up. So no theologian in his right mind believes verse 9. Verse 9 is a... Is a, is a to- that's only way you can... A modern person would interpret verse 9 is, Moses thought the Lord said to him. That's the way it would be interpreted. Moses thought that God said. But God really didn't say in words that you and I could hear and record in the tape recorder. Now, that's why a big point I want to make right here at the start is Mount Sinai was a public speaking of God in the Hebrew it's known as, we say, the Ten Commandments, but actually in the Hebrew it's to the Ten Words, the Ten Things, the Ten Devarim, the Ten Words. And what it means is, is that all the people heard from that mountaintop in the Hebrew language, God speaking. And, and, you know, Cecil DeMille did a great job with his cartooning, with the fires going down and you hear God speaking. And, I mean, it was a good rendition. But no modern theologian ever buy that. Why do we say, why are we making such a big issue? Because now we come to an important view, just as we dealt with judgment salvation, we dealt with all these other things. When we are here now at Mount Sinai, we are face to face with a contemporary issue. And here it is. What is the source of values, ethics, and law? It's, this, this is a debate that goes on all the time. And in the Christian life, ethics, value, and law. In the Christian life, we code it, maybe, and we tend to weaken it, but whenever we're interested in what is the will of God for me, we're interested in this. What's the will of God? Well, I can't tell what the will of God is, can I? If I don't answer that question. If I don't have those, I don't have the will of God. Unless I'm a mystic. Now, if I'm a mystic, I can dream the will of God. Or I can feel the will of God. Or I can go through some spooky hocus-pocus and get the word of God. But that's not biblical. The Bible says that we know the will of God through words. Conversation. That's why he wrote a book for us. We talk to him. He talks to us. So, the issue then is values, ethics, and law. Now, in the notes, there's an important point right from the start. Because it's a tremendous point of tension. This is as vigorously in opposition to our world as anything you ever learned last year about evolution and the age of the universe and the age of the earth and the age of man. All that was kind of flamboyant. You know, because it was really, boy, I tell you, that's a real conflict. But this is the real conflict in our time. If you'll look at the paragraph, Values, Ethics, and Law, I just want to read through some of that, and then we'll come to certain... uh, uh, I'm going to actually review some of the stuff that we learned last time, and go into the biblical view, and then you'll see, then on page 65, I go to the pagan view. When we get done, we're going to learn something about the law, I hope. And... Before we get there, there's something that I didn't do, and I just remembered that from last week. If you'll turn to page 63, I can't make my point until I make my point on page 63, so we better go back to 63. We've got to go through some scriptures here. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we get into the meaning of the Exodus, we want to take a look at what happened. We said that 
those six elements on page 63, those characteristics, are characteristics that were found in documents recently discovered, recently being the last 20 or 30 years, of treaties. And we said these treaties, which are called Susan Tree Vassal Treaties, were made between a great king and a vassal king. Vassal king is just an inferior power. The king here was a superpower, and this was, uh, we'll say, a third world nation. And there was a relationship that was established by its means of a treaty. And these treaties had these features. And it was an interesting discovery. I happen not to agree with some of the interpretation of the discovery. A lot of the interpretation, you know, the Bible could never be the first thing out. God always has to imitate what man has done. So that the way this is usually done is, well, God accommodated himself to this previous literary format. Well, that's if you date history that way, I don't think so. I think this is the first format in history and all the other treaties were mimickies of it. But whatever. Let me go through each of these six real quickly here because they set us up for really understanding what's going on. So Exodus 20. If you look at Exodus 20, the Ten Commandment passage. There are features in this Ten Commandment passage you want to look at. First one is that in the treaties, the great king always identified himself to ingratiate himself. So in the preamble, there was always a preamble, Exodus chapter 20, verses two, 1 and 2. God spoke all these words and he introduces himself for the first, first sentence. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So, item one is the preamble, item two is the historical prologue, and in the historical prologue, the great king would, and this is important because we're going to see what this leads to in an understanding of law. It's really important to see this, this, the, the way the politics worked here. The politics worked that this guy, the superpower, wanted obedience from this guy. And usually he, he got wealth and taxes and he also got infantry soldiers from this guy to do his battles for him. That's how they built their armies. And he had trade and so forth. So it was, a, it was a flow of wealth, but it was also, this vassal king was also protected. So he basically purchased, at the price of his economic freedom, the vassal king purchased security from the great king. It's the same thing today in the international realm. During the Cold War, small countries would align themselves with the Soviet Union or they align themselves with the United States of America. And they would prostrate themselves economically in one sense, and, but they bought our security. We, we, we offered them security in return for some bennies. Usually the Soviets got more bennies than we did. But the great king always wanted to appeal to this guy. And instead of saying, you are going to obey me, the great king would say, you should obey me. See the difference? Instead of commanding obedience, he invited obedience. Of course, it was invited with a big stick behind him. But it was inviting obedience on the basis of obligation. Fundamental point about the law. We're going to come back to this again and again. Look at verse 2 and 3. Especially the end of verse 2. I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
Okay, now just think about that for a minute. Who acted first? Israel or Jehovah? Jehovah did. Now, who owes who? You see the relationship sets up? Now, remember this. We're going into the law, and a lot of people misunderstand the law. Understand that the law comes after there's an obligation. The motive is gratitude for something the great king did for Jehovah. Number three, the treaties made certain stipulations. And, of course, the ten words are the stipulations. Number four, this is intriguing. If you look at that carefully, in the Susan G. Vassal Treaty, two copies of the treaty were made. One for each party's temple, where it would be safeguarded and periodically reviewed. Here's what happened. The great king, they make these tablets in stone, carve them in stone. They'd have two of them. One of these guys would be on deposit in this temple up here. And this one would be on deposit in this temple here. So the people here had a copy of it, and the people here had a copy of it. Now that's intriguing. How many tablets did Moses bring down from Mount Sinai? Two. Now where were those tablets stored? Let's think about that. Where were they deposited and kept? In the tabernacle. Now whose temple is the tabernacle? Israel's or Jehovah's? Both. So both copies are embedded in the same temple because in this case, the temple of Jehovah is the tabernacle. The temple of Israel, that belongs to Israel, is the tabernacle because God meets Israel in the place. There's not separated places where the two copies are kept. They're kept together. So it suggests that instead of having five commandments on one, like you usually see in Sunday school literature, and commandments six through ten on the second tablet, really what you had was all ten words on both tablets. They were duplicate copies. Why is there a treaty? Why do you make a covenant? To monitor behavior, right? It's a verifiable ruler, yardstick, to monitor behavior between the two parties to the covenant. So it's important that both parties to the covenant have copies of the contract. You all make contracts all the time. You have a copy of the contract. And you keep a copy of that in your files because that is your rights. That spells out what the relationship, the behavior is expected of both parties. Another interesting thing, um, oh, and by the way, um, there was always a public reading. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 31. When the treaties were made, both parties to the treaty would haul out the contract periodically and read it. In Deuteronomy 31... Verse 9, look what happens to the Old Testament law code. Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the son of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to all the elders of Israel. And then Moses commanded them and said, At the end of every seven years, in the time of the year of remission of debts at the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place where he will choose, you will read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. You will assemble the people, the men, the women, and the children, and the alien, the foreigner, who is in your town. 
in order that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe the words of this law. And their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross Jordan to possess. Now isn't that an intriguing requirement? Every seven years, the entire nation had to publicly study the law in its entirety. They had to stand there as the priests read it. Not all of them were literate. But they had to endure this ceremony every seven years. Now, what would be analogous to that in our legal structure today? Every seven years, every American family would have to read the United States Constitution. There would be a public reading of the United States Constitution every seven years. So everybody understands what the basis of this country is all about. That might create a revolution. Okay, then then the next thing that would happen. Item five. The invocation of witnesses to the treaty. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 16. Remember we said the purpose of a treaty is to monitor behavior. Now, in verse 16... The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will rise up and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land, and in the midst of which they're going, they will forsake me, break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them. They shall be consumed, and many evils and troubles shall come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Is it not because the Lord or the God is not among us that these evils have come? But I will surely hide my face in that day. Now, therefore, write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it in their lips in order that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. For when I bring them, and what we have here is the national anthem of Old Testament Israel. We don't know what the music sounded like, but this was the national anthem of the nation that invoked the blessing and cursings of the covenant. For I will bring unto them the land flowing with milk and honey and so forth and so forth. Verse 22. Moses wrote the song the same day and he taught it to the sons of Israel. Then he commissioned Joshua and said, Be strong, be courageous, and the the leadership passes. In verse 1 of the next chapter, Deuteronomy 32, do you notice who is addressed in the first stanza of the song? Keep in mind... In the Hebrew, here's how they titled music. The Psalms title isn't Psalm 1 or Psalm 2 or Psalm 3. That's just the English Bible does that. In the Hebrew, in the original language, the title of the Psalm is the first verse. That's the title. Now, you want to see a place in the New Testament where you can tell that was the title? Every account you read about Jesus on the cross tells you that he recited what Psalm? My God, my God, that was saying Psalm 22. But apparently he did recite the whole psalm and the, and the gospel writer didn't say Psalm verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5. They're not all quoted in the gospels. What is quoted in the gospel? As Jesus hangs on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why thou hast forsaken me? And we say, oh, he just quoted verse 1. No, he didn't. When the gospel writer is saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He sang that song. 
That was the title. So the quote of verse 1 is the title, and it means that Jesus recited all the psalm from the cross, including all the great prophetic parts of that psalm. And the, and the gospel writer, being a Jew, to bring into a Jewish culture, he said, uh, you know, he, he, it would be like us saying, Jesus cited, recited Psalm 22. That's how we would write it in English. And we'd expect that if you were interested in what Jesus said, well, you'd go back to the Old Testament, look at Psalm 22 and see what it was he said. Well, that's how Jewish music is. The title is the first verse. Now, that means that this national anthem of Israel is entitled by the first verse. So chapter 32, verse 1 is the title of the national anthem. And the national anthem starts, not, oh, say, can you see, but it says, Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. There's an invocation, actually, to angelic powers of the creation to oversee and monitor the behavior of the people in this covenant. And the, song, the, the national anthem goes on. It's an it's amazing national anthem. It proclaims the history of the nation. See, that's why the liberals can't buy this. They, oh, you can't have prophecy in a song. Gee, you know, God might exist if that happened. So, so, so chapter 32 is a complete prophecy of all the history of the Old Testament. How amazing, isn't that? It would be like George Washington wrote a national anthem for the United States that included a prophecy of the world wars, of the Civil War. And wouldn't that be amazing? And so they were required to sing this. Now, whether they did or not is another story, but the nation was supposed to sing this. No, they had football games or what, but they were supposed to sing this periodically. Now, why am I making a point about verse 1? Because the behavior of the nation under the Sinaitic or Mosaic Covenant, this treaty, was to be monitored by certain people. The heavens and the earth. That's metaphor for the angelic powers of the universe that are called in to witness what's going on here. Now, here is a revolution in understanding the Old Testament. For years and years, the liberals always used to say, oh, Jeremiah and Isaiah and Zechariah, all these guys that wrote in the Old Testament, they were social critics. And the picture that has been taught in schools has been that all the rest of the Old Testament is a bunch of social critics. Not so. The prophets of the Old Testament acted because the voice of the Holy Spirit came upon them and the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouths of those prophets and it was the Holy Spirit indicting the nation for the transgressions of the covenant of Moses. That's the reason. Now let me show you exactly how that happens. Hold a place in Deuteronomy 32 and turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Observe the first two verses of this great... This is the prophet of the prophets. Everybody knows Isaiah. Okay? Isaiah is always considered to be the, you know, the perfect Old Testament prophet. Now, isn't it interesting what he says in verse 2? Who is he addressing? 
Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared up and brought up, but they have revolted against me. The ox knows its owner, and we all know that verse. The, uh, the donkey, its master's manager, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. God is lamenting the behavior of the people before which audience? The heavens and the earth. Who was originally invoked by the treaty to be witnesses to the treaty? the heavens and the earth. You see? It's a consistency that is marvelous in the Old Testament. The Old Testament has this exciting structure to it. These guys are not random social critics. That's the wrong way to read the prophets. They are prosecuting attorneys. They are prosecuting and bringing a case against the infidelities of Israel with respect to a law that they should have known. They are not saying, you should do this, and the, and the people, hey, gee, we never knew that, Isaiah. I mean, gosh, uh, teach us how to do that. That wasn't the role of the prophet. The role of the prophet was to say, you have sinned, and you have transgressed this, 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 and you know it, and you should have known this, because that was your national constitution, it was in your national anthem, and you should have been singing this. You should have been reading that covenant every seven years. There's no excuse for this. Your social institutions are rotten to the core because you've transgressed all these things. The prophets do not, in other words, introduce new social ideas. The prophets are reactionaries. They go back to the ideas of Moses. So, this is, a, this is the correct way of reading the Old Testament. It's reactionary. It is back to Moses. Not a social advance and new thinking and evolution of ethics and morality in the Old Testament. That's not true. That is not true. It's going back to the covenant. Okay, now we come to the question we started with tonight. Looking at the... Oh, the other one that we want to look before we leave is at the bottom of page 63, a cursing and a blessing formula. And this one is, occurs two places. Leviticus 26, if you'll hold the passage there, and Deuteronomy 28. Now, this is where God gets the bad name from the Old Testament. Nobody reads this, of course. Everybody hears that somebody heard, that somebody heard, that somebody heard, that somebody read it. Now, this is the passage. These two chapters are the meanie chapters. This is the bad press of the God of the Old Testament. Now, let's read what he was doing. Keep in mind a treaty again. The great king, if the vassal king doesn't obey, he's going to have a little problem because the covenant is going to be enforced. Agriculture. So what would that correspond to today? Economic blessing. So verse 4, see salvation is not just spiritual. I will give you, in this covenant, I will give you rains in their season. The land will yield its produce and the trees will bear their fruit. You can sell it, make money. Indeed, your threshing floor will last for you until great gathering and so on and so forth. Verse 6, I will grant peace in the land. You'll lie down, nobody making trouble. I will eliminate harmful beasts from the land. No sword will pass through your land, but you will chase your enemies. They'll fall before the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred. A hundred of you will chase ten thousand. Your enemies will fall to you by the sword. They will have military victory. They will enjoy military superiority. It's a picture of a nation that is blessed. 
to have victory in the battlefield, to have victory in business. Verse 9, I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply. And so on. But now, verse 14, if you do not obey me and you do not carry out these commandments, you reject my statutes. Verse 16, I will point over you sudden terror, consumption, a fever that shall waste away the eyes and cause your soul to pine away. You shall sow your seed uselessly for your enemies shall eat it up. What is that saying in terms of our society? Economic disaster. Aided by military defeat the marks of God's cursing on Israel. Verse 17, I will set my face against you and you will be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you. They will become vassals to foreign powers. What happened in the rest of the Old Testament? They become vassals to foreign powers? Sure they did. Verse 23, if by these things you're still not turned to me, but you act hostily against me, I will act with hostility against you. And it is a series of escalations. Verse 27, if in spite of this you do not obey me, but act with hostility, then I will do more. There's five levels of discipline in chapter 26. Five levels where if the nation is, is, is blasted and God says, now, are you going to listen to me or not? Okay, you're not going to listen? We'll turn it up a notch and we'll go to phase two. Try that one on. Not going to listen? Okay. Click it up to phase three. And so there's five levels here. Verse 27 is one, verse 34, and so forth. And in verse 40, um, let's see, in verse 40, I wanted to look for one particular verse. Well, we won't, we'll see that later in another passage. But uh, the, there's a prophecy here of all the disasters that are going to come upon the nation. Okay, now, um, if you'll turn to Deuteronomy 28, this is the other passage of the cursings and the blessings. Now, this doesn't make for nice reading. This is quite violent, bloodthirsty, and gory. But God has put it in the Scriptures. In Deuteronomy 28, it starts off with blessing. Notice verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. There's all the blessings. And then come the cursings in 16, 17, 18, 19. And the cursings are not nice. In verse 22, the Lord will smite you with consumption, with fever and inflammation, and fiery heat with a sword, with blight, with mildew. He shall pursue you until you perish. The heaven which is over you shall be bronze, the earth under you iron. There will be climatological disasters that yield agricultural disasters. There will be health problems, and public health will be in a mess, verse 22. Verse 26, and your carcasses shall be food to all the birds of the sky, to the beasts of the field, and there will be no one to frighten them away. In other words, so many people will die that you can't bury them fast enough. So their bodies smell and rot out in the fields. Verse 30, you shall betroth a wife and another man will violate her. You will build a house and you're not going to live in it. You'll plant a vineyard and you will not use its fruit. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes and you will not eat of it. Your donkey shall be torn away from you. You shall not be restored. Your sheep will be given to your enemies. Verse 35, the Lord will strike you on the knees and legs with sore boils from which you cannot be healed. From the sore of your foot, sole of your foot to the crown of your head. You see why God gets kind of nasty here, doesn't he? 
And uh, I mean, this is the, this is our God and our Savior. Uh, but just look what he's looks what he's doing here. Um, verse 50: A nation of fierce countenance, who shall have no respect for old, nor show favor to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your herd, produce your ground until you is destroyed, and so on. It will come against your towns. Now, verse 53. This is a prophecy of what literally happened twice inside the city of Jerusalem. Verse 53. You will eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemies shall oppress you. And that happened. In the siege of Jerusalem, mothers ate their babies because they were starving so much. Just cut them up and ate them. That historically happened. Josephus, you want this text? Josephus, go to the library and read it. It's there. It's part of the historical record. And people say, how did, you know, did this just happen because of the Romans? No. This is written before the Romans. Verse 53 was the cursing section of the treaty. Now, conclusion. Did God or did he not enforce his treaty? You see how the treaty shaped history? And why the rest of the Old Testament from this point forward is a historical analysis. This is why history started. You see, history begins in the Old Testament as his story. History has a pattern to it. The pagans never get the point. They're always inventing economic cycles. Or there's something else, or there's this, or there's that explanation. But the explanation for why historical events occur in the sequence they occur is because that is the way God administers history. And Israel's history is a subset of everybody else's history. Israel's national history is outlined here. This is a control case. This is a case study of what it looks like to see the kingdom of God administered in history. You say, well, gee, if you saw the kingdom of God, you ought to see blessing. Not necessarily. See where our, our ideas have to get shaped by Scripture? The kingdom of God's presence can also be seen in suffering. And this is why this means suffering in our lives. And you say, well, God isn't blessing me. Well, not right now He's not. But the fact of the matter is, because I am being disciplined, is a sign that my Heavenly Father is concerned about me enough to discipline me. Now, that's not doesn't come off good in our society because we let brats do whatever they want to do. But, but in the Old Testament times, it was considered to be a form of love. That's why in Hebrews 12, what does it say in Hebrews 12? Is if you if you don't get chastening and you don't see any suffering in your life when you do wrong, you better start seriously re-examining whether you're saved. The very fact is, as His children, we don't get away with it. We get smacked. And then we whine about it. Well, we get smacked because we're the children of the Father. And He has a big paddle. The problem is, if you go out and uh, raise all kinds of cane and don't get smacked, now you begin to wonder, and what Hebrews 12 says, you better check out your ancestry. Okay? So, that's the background of the cursing and the blessings. Now, what we want to do in concluding what I started to do at the beginning was to get into the meaning of values, ethics, and law. So we're back over on page 64. And what we're trying to do here is to think about the dilemma of our time. 
And if you look at the paragraph, it begins values, ethics, and law. In those two paragraphs, this is something that you folks need to have in the back of your mind if you are sharing the gospel with anybody that is enveloped in the world system. I'm giving you an illustration here in these two paragraphs. Try this on your friends. There's a dilemma here. And this is a neat thing to bring up because on a non-Christian basis, there's no way out of this paradox. In other words, don't you feel like you are the defending one? In this case, you step in the driver's seat and it's now going to be Mr. Unbeliever who's on the defensive because he hasn't got a solution to what I'm going to show you here. So let's look at these two paragraphs and then we'll finish the lesson for tonight. No society can exist without a moral authority, a binding code of behavior or a set of common values. The problem here is what happens if an entire society's moral authority is immoral, such as a cannibalistic tribe. John Warwick Montgomery used to go around saying, in a cannibalistic society, it's considered to be good manners to clean your plate. What about Nazi Germany or the future kingdom of the Antichrist? Obviously, we're not interested in any code or common value set. If society were its own moral authority, now look at this sentence. If society were its own moral authority, then no room would exist for a reformer, right? What does a reformer do? He challenges the existing values of the society. So if society is the source of right and wrong, then you've eliminated all reform. How do you justify reformation? By definition, he or she would be immoral because they rebel against the traditional values. Flagrant criminal actions could be justified by appeal to society's code. A clear instance, now here's the dilemma. Watch this paragraph. A clear instance of this problem occurred in 1945 at the end of World War II. Nazi authorities defended their atrocities by appeal to Third Reich official policies and orders. At the, at the Nazi war criminal trial at Nuremberg, the American jurist, Supreme Court Judge Robert Jackson, put the matter well. It's a neat quote. These men should be tried on this basis, on a higher law, a higher law which rises above the provincial and the transient. See, here's Jackson now. He's on the trial at Nuremberg, and they're trying the Nazis, and the Nazi defense attorneys are very good. They're very well-trained lawyers. And they simply argue it's very simple. Um, we look at Goebbels here, Mr. Goebbels. Herr Goebbels is, is, is perfectly vindicated. I mean, look, here's the order. The Führer put the order out. Mr. Goebbels had to do nothing. I mean, all he had to do was follow the order. You can't convict. This court has no, no authority to convict Goebbels of any war crimes. He was carrying out orders. Look at the order. There it is, signed. Right there. That's the authority. So what are you blaming him for? He's just following an order. So he, you cannot convict him. On the basis of German law, you cannot convict him. And that's when Jackson and the jurists at Nuremberg had a problem. How do they convict the Nazis? They can't convict them on the basis of Nazi rules, can they? Because it was the rules that was a problem. So what do you do? Well, what they did in 1945 is so neat from our point of view. They had to retreat away from the idea that society makes law and had to recite some, quote, higher law. Of course, they didn't, where do we get the higher law from, see? That's the intriguing one. So, here's what Jackson says. 
They have to be tried on a higher law, left, left to your imagination, where it comes from, which rises above the provincial and the transient. The provincial being a narrow country, Germany, England, France, that would be provincial. And the transient meaning it was just uh, from 1933 to 1945. For 12 years we had this bizarre uh, German culture. And he said, we've got to get away from the provincial and the transient. To counter the Nazi legal defense, the world community had to use an appeal to a higher law that stood over the lower law of Nazi policy. In other words, to successfully prosecute Nazi authorities, the world had to acknowledge that laws of any society are provincial and transient. See what they did? It's the only way they could convict the Nazis. Think of, think of the problem today in Europe. If you were a lawyer protecting the Serbs, very easy to do. Sure, we wiped out the Bosnians. But that was the order. The order came down, order number 561. There it is, see? Published it. I'm the commander, I salute and say, yes, sir. Carry out the order. No problem. What are you convicting me for? You can't convict me. I didn't break any law. There it is. I got the law right here. So how are you going to convict me? So, this is, the, this is the central issue, and it's such a great illustration. You always want to remember the 1945 incident. Well, we want to conclude the class today by citing a very interesting contemporary thing, if you don't think this can not happen here. Look at this mess. There is a judge right now in Alabama known as Judge Roy Moore. Judge Moore, uh, from what I hear, is a Christian. Judge Moore has committed the unpardonable sin in the eyes of the ACLU in that he has displayed the Ten Commandments on the wall of his courtroom. Oh, goodness. I mean, we can have Playboy, we can have anything else in the courtroom, but boy, you can't have the Ten Commandments. I mean, come on. So, another judge in Montgomery, Alabama, the more state higher level judge, has has demanded that Judge Moore, within 10 days, take down the Ten Commandments from his court. So I was just noticing on the internet, here's what happens. His crime is having a copy of the Ten Commandments in his courtroom and conducting voluntary prayer before the start of a court session. Um, so the judge, this, the judge of the other court, uh, okay, let me, let me read this paragraph because this is the way, it's so neat the way it's worded. As you may know by now, Alabama Governor Forrest Hood James has promised to call out the Alabama National Guard and the state troopers to prevent James, uh, to prevent the arrest of State Circuit Court Judge Moore, Roy Moore at Etowah County. Judge Moore today was ordered by State Judge Price of Montgomery County to take down the Ten Commandments from the wall of his courtroom within ten days. Judge Moore says he will not do so under any circumstances. Thus, the stage is set for a constitutional crisis. Though Judge Price is a state rather than a federal judge, it is possible the federal government will intervene in this state matter if Governor James uses force to protect Judge Moore from being arrested under a warrant issued for contempt of court. Though it is not clear at this point how the crisis will manifest itself, this is a matter for us to closely monitor. The Southern League of Alabama will stand by Governor James and will act in accordance with his orders to protect the sovereignty and integrity of the state of Alabama. As Alabamians, we intend to act according to our state motto, Autumnus Jura Nostra Defendari, we dare defend our rights. So now, isn't this cute? Let's watch 
our president talk out of both sides of his mouth to handle this one. Now we could have the National Guard versus federal troops arguing over whether or not the Ten Commandments piece of paper is going to be removed from a courtroom or not. Now I'm sure that the authorities won't let it get this far because if they do, it will just simply galvanize the attention of the country on this issue and I don't think they really want to do that. But I, I cite this as a very contemporary example because if you were Judge Moore, to what do you appeal? The law says you will take it down. That's the law. Under the codes, that is the law. Judge Moore says, in this situation, I will disobey the law. And he's a judge. He's a lawyer. He's trained in the law. So what is he doing? He's reverting to the higher law dictum. And this is where things get really nasty and tough, is to when you break loose from lower law to go to higher law, do you do it arbitrarily? Do you do it with controls and so forth? So we just cite that this area that we're into here at Mount Sinai and the nature of God and his revelation is very, very contemporary. So what I'd like you to do is carefully read the biblical view in, in, in uh, page 64 and 65, and then we'll get into an exposition of the lordship, what that means that goes along with the law. I also hope that I will show you and when we get into the pagan view, I brought it tonight, but we haven't got it, so I'll get it next time. This little book here is called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is an exposition of what the Jewish rabbis did with the law in Jesus' day. And I want to read to you, we'll go through a gospel situation where Jesus was you know, eating on the Sabbath day, and I'll read to you, here are the codes that they were supposed to follow on the Sabbath day. There's instructions in how to cook eggs on the road, so that you can do it without getting violated on Sabbath day. There's talking about tubes of cold water through springs of hot water. If the kettle of hot water was taken from the stove, cold water may not be put in it to be made hot. But enough may be put therein or into the hot water in the cup to make the hot water lukewarm. And it goes on and on like this, page after page. This is the Mishnah. This is what the Pharisees believed in the Old Testament. They had bureaucratized the laws till it became a technical and mechanical game. That's all it was. Totally divorced. And the guy that wrote the law was eating in the Sabbath. And these lawyers had the nerve to talk to the lawmaker at Mount Sinai whose law it was and tell him what the interpretation was of his own law. You see the arrogance? But it's an arrogance that we see today because we have distorted what real law is in this country. And we're going to see that as we go on to the, the Mount Sinai. Father, thank you that you remain faithful to your word and that while it hurts sometimes for us to be conformed to your, your righteous nature and it's painful and we often undergo sufferings, uh, some of it, many of much of it is just self-induced suffering from our own disobedience. Yet nevertheless, we thank you that we have a sure word of prophecy, a word that continues on forever and that we have a platform on which to stand, and that we know what law is, and we know where it comes from, because we know the lawgiver. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. Get out of here. But um, Anything to discuss? If there aren't, we'll call it a night.
Yeah. I have a question. Um, when you're talking about the Okay, the question is, how could there have been a 500-year era in Egyptian history, like I keep saying that has to happen here? The reason is that history is very much interpretation. There aren't documents that depict um, history in the way we would like it. We would like everything depicted anchored to a calendar. But ancient documents don't do that. Like a lot of Egyptian history says, uh, Pharaoh so-and-so reigned X years, uh, Pharaoh somebody else reigned seven years. They don't even say that they weren't co-reigning. So it, you piece it together. And what they have done is all of ancient history in Egypt and Assyria hinges on one little pebble. And the pebble is called a Sata stating. And it's uh, every... I think... It was, I, my numbers probably aren't right here, but every some like 1,600 years, Venus and the Sun rise together at that latitude in Egypt. So, if you could say, locate a document in Egyptian history that reports the simultaneous morning rise of the Sun and Venus, you'd have, I mean, it would either be 1640 here or this one. So you could anchor it. Then you could, if that document mentions somebody, you could anchor this document to that document and you'd build a chain. Well, that's what they, they've done. The debate, however, is, is whether the document, the anchor document, is really talking about the sun and Venus coming up in the morning. But it's amazing to me, when I got back into reading, well, how's it, because I, I had the same question, well, how, do you, how do you work this around? And it's, it's so arbitrary. A lot of this stuff is really not solved. We are taught very incorrectly in our educational establishment. If I had my druthers, I, I, I often thought of a dream course that every senior or maybe every freshman or sophomore had taken in college, at least one semester. The semester course would consist of three questions, and that's it. And the semester would be divided into thirds. And one-third, you debate one question, and one-third, the next question. The first question would be a question about thinking. The deductive approach versus the inductive approach. Aristotle, say, versus Francis Bacon. Just to get people intrigued, well, there's ways of thinking. Is it a deductive approach? Is it the inductive approach? And so forth. Then I would have the second thing, the creation-evolution conflict, the story between Charles Darwin and Carolus Linnaeus. And have both of the have the students actually have to read the original source material, and come to their own conclusions. And then I'd have one uh, Galileo and uh, Copernicus and Ptolemy. Does the Earth rotate around the Sun, or is the Sun around the Earth? And I think by the time the class came to the end of the semester, they'd suddenly have an awareness that these quote truths that everybody quotes as gospel really aren't quite so sure. And that's the problem. We are taught this by way of propaganda. Like, you, you read a book on history and you swear that, oh, geez, you know, somebody reigned in 44 B.C. Well, yeah, at that point, it's pretty well locked up, all the way back to about 700 B.C. But you go backwards of 700 B.C. and you get 1,000, 1,500, 2,000. Things get greasy. And it's a lot of stuff that's just built up. So that's why. History is not tight-knit like that. There's room to drive holes through it. So, 
And you have other things. If you, if you move the, it's, it's just funny, if you move that Egyptian history by 500 years, all of a sudden you get these lineups. Like Queen Hatshepsut appears to be the Queen of Sheba. Uh, Joshua hits Jericho just the right time and the walls are flat and the dating works out better. Um, Egypt disappears from history between the time of Moses and the time of um, uh, Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And that corresponds exactly to the time length between the Middle Kingdom and the New Kingdom. And you suddenly get everything starts to fit. There's problems, yeah. But it's just history isn't as airtight as we like to make it. That's the final answer to that. Yes. Yeah, good, another good question. Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, the same thing. And believe it or not, one of the guys that I was with on this tour 20 years ago raised the same question because his tradition about Sinai, Mount Horeb, and the, we were asking some of the... He, was, he could talk Hebrew, so he was asking the Bedouin about it. And the nearest thing he can come to is that Mount Horeb, at least the modern Bedouin, called Mount Horeb that mountain from the back. So when they're in the back side, they look at it and they say, that's Mount Horeb. And they come around the front side of it and it's Mount Sinai. Or they don't call it Mount Sinai. We call it Mount Sinai because it's the mountain of Sinai, but they call it Jebel Musa. Jebel is the Aramaic word, Arabic word, I guess, for mountain. And Musar is the word for discipline. It means teaching with a big stick. And uh, Musar, the Jebel Musar is when God taught with a big stick. Anything else? Any other questions? Okay.